Good morning. Thank you for having me again. Uh, I visited probably a year and a half or two years ago, and I guess we did all right. We didn't get chased out. Uh, it's good to be back and thankful for your support of our ministry at Rowan University to connect students with Christ and equip them to serve Him. I'm glad to be here uh, to strengthen and equip you, saints, for service of Christ. Let's uh, go to God's Word in Luke chapter 24, beginning at verse 13 and through verse 31. I have a um, habit when I preach or teach that I like to ask people to stand for the reading of God's Word. Um, I'd like to ask you if you're able to stand. I know it's quite a long section that we'll be reading too, so... If you're not able, that's okay. Uh, I have a preference for standing as giving reverence to God. It's God's Word, and it also stretches us out. Um, So let's stand for the reading of God's Word if we're able. Beginning Luke 24, verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know these things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and beside all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he were going on further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened up the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Again, thank you very much for having us here today to 
preach God's word and this morning to give an update on what God's doing among Generation Z, uh, the college students over at Rowan University. It's a privilege to minister the word of God there, to meet with students, to proclaim the excellencies of Christ and to see them respond to the gospel and to grow in faith and even then to go and serve the Lord themselves in speaking with their fellow students, with their peers and with others. This morning, as uh, we've looked at Luke chapter 24, I want to ask if you've ever met a famous person before. When I was in kindergarten, uh, my, it was actually not me in kindergarten, my brother was in kindergarten and first graduation. We lived near St. Louis, and this will date how old I am. Ozzie Smith was the star shortstop of the St. Louis Cardinals at that time. And my brother was a big Ozzie Smith fan. And so we went to St. Louis for celebratory dinner. And it was Ozzie Smith's restaurant. And Ozzie Smith was there filming his TV show. And my brother was nudging my parents. There's Ozzie Smith. There he is. My parents said, that's not Ozzie Smith. It's, it's not. And he kept nudging. It is. It is. And eventually my father realized it was Ozzie Smith. So he took my brother up to meet him, and he got his autograph and got to shake his hand. But me, I didn't believe, and so I stayed back. I didn't get to meet Ozzy at that time. And as obstinate as it seems I was there, apparently I didn't learn my lesson, because many years later, here in New Jersey, my wife and I were out on a date, and we went to Hibachi, and we were sitting at the Hibachi table, and the way it is, it's like a U-shaped table, you know, and there's several people sitting next to us. And there's this young man, maybe early 20s, sitting next to us and, and maybe a 10-year-old kid with him. And it seems odd that someone that young would have a 10-year-old child with them. And they're dressed in hockey gear and they keep talking about hockey. But I have no idea who they are. I'm trying to figure out a little bit while they're there and also be a good, dutiful husband and pay attention to my wife on my date, right? Um, and... Apparently this is somebody, but I don't know who he is. Well, eventually, a father and a son come up to this young man and ask him for their autograph and to take a picture. And he's very polite and signs the picture and and signs the autograph and takes the picture. And then after that, the guy on the other end of the table turns to him and says, Hey, that was a great game last night. And I realized that I'm in the presence of somebody famous. And I have no idea who he is. Has that ever happened to you? Well, I come to find out that that was Sean Couturier, who is a player for the Philadelphia Flyers. And this was several years back, so he was quite young then. But as we look at our Bible text, we find that there's these disciples that are on a journey. And they're joined by a man, and they have no idea who he is. Now, we know, after reading the text, that he is the most important person ever. It's Jesus the resurrected Lord. And these guys had walked and talked and listened and served with Jesus for three years or for some time. And yet, how do they not know who he is? How can they not see him? And so we're looking at seeing Jesus. Is it possible that we could be serving Jesus or be trying to follow Jesus and yet, like these disciples, unable to see him? And so we're going to look through three points One is what we need to see Jesus. Uh, Point two is then how God reveals Jesus to us. And point three is how seeing Jesus 
changes us as it changed these disciples. Let's look first at what we need to see Jesus. And beginning in Luke 24, verse 16, we're told that these disciples' eyes were kept from seeing Jesus. So they journey together and they're talking about the events that had transpired recently. The events that had transpired recently was one whirlwind of a weekend. I don't know how your weekend has gone this week. Mine has been quite busy. Friday was Valentine's Day and we went out for dinner as a family and then my wife and I went out later and then yesterday we had a training on campus for evangelism with students and then a birthday party for my son and by the time yesterday afternoon came it had been a week and about a day and a half for me. But for these disciples they had had quite a dramatic weekend. Their Lord, their Master, had been betrayed and arrested and crucified on Friday. And yet now it had been three days later, and they remembered he had talked about in three days he would rise, but there were some weird things happening, and they were quite despondent as they journeyed, and they were confused, and they didn't know what had happened. And as they walked, they're heading to this village of Emmaus. It's a full day's journey away. And this stranger comes up. What are you guys talking about? And you can imagine the disdain is the one named Cleopas. Are you kidding me? Are you the only person in the area that hasn't heard what's been going on this weekend? The stranger says, go on. And so Cleopas explains about this man Jesus, who was a prophet, mighty in word and deed before God and all the people. And had the plot and how the chief priests and rulers had delivered him up and condemned him to death and crucified him. And how the disciples had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. The one that had been longed hoped for and looked for. But now it's been three days since his crucifixion and maybe he wasn't it. Should they look for another? Is one even coming? Hundreds, thousands of years, Israel has been waiting for the Redeemer. And there have been time after time after time where somebody came and said, I am him. And he wasn't him. And this guy, was he just like one of those? Well, some of the women of their group were telling an amazing story that no one could hardly believe. They went to his tomb early that morning and his body wasn't there. And instead, they said they saw angels that were saying he was alive. See, it's amazing that they referenced that some women went to the tomb. Because at the time, women were not a trustworthy source. And so the fact that women are the first to see the empty tomb speaks powerfully to the way that our God works and reveals beyond our cultural assumptions and understandings to help us to see Jesus. But just to be sure, they sent some of the men to check it out. And so they went in and and they checked out the tomb. And hey, that tomb sure was empty. Those women are telling the truth. But they didn't see Jesus. So where is the body? So there's a common problem. The disciples and the men do not see Jesus. The women did, but the men apparently did not believe them. And so what do they need to see Jesus? And in the conversation, then Jesus replies to them, 
down in verse 25, saying, You foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Do you not know? Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And how did they miss that it's necessary for the Christ and the Redeemer to suffer before entering his glory? So what we need to see Jesus is to see that the word of God as it speaks of the Redeemer and to believe what it says. Because when they say, and they don't, when they're called foolish for not seeing all that the prophets speak of Jesus, because they weren't ready for the suffering. They were looking for a Messiah who was going to come in and end the suffering. He was going to overthrow the Romans. He was going to bring in the kingdom of God on earth. And Israel, the kingdom was going to be restored. This was their hope. They had misplaced hope that had blinded them to the Redeemer that God had actually sent. So I think about where do we as 21st century American Christians misplace our hope? We'll replace it in things where God has not given it. I think one place that we misplace our hope is in our achievement. If we just work really hard, we've got that education, and if we train our children well, and if we work hard at work, we'll get recognized, we'll get the promotion, we'll be secure in our finances, able to provide for our family and for our future. That could be our hope, and that could get us through. But as maybe some of you know, and as, as I know, and I've walked with people through, sometimes you lose the job, even though you work hard. Or you don't get the promotion, even though you deserve it. The achievement that you long for, and you crave for, and you work so hard, doesn't come. And you may feel that we had hoped that my achievement would give me purpose, and identity, and security. And for others, we may misplace our hope in relationships. That, you know, if, if we just made sure we married the right person, or if we could just get, like, our husband to, to be a little more proactive, or our wife to, like, just, come on. Then things would be good if we could just get our relationships in line. Or if we just make the right friends with the right networks. Then we can have security and hope. But what if you made friends with the wrong people? Or if the relationship fails? Or if you don't ever find full contentment in the relationship that God has given you? Our hope in our relationships will be misplaced as well. But many in our age actually place hope in ourselves. You know, if you really want to get the job done and do it well, you just got to do it yourself. Just buckle in and do it. I can't hope in myself because I'm often a mess up. I wonder about you if you've ever had a project, you just try and do it yourself and get into it and maybe halfway in you realize, "Uh uh-oh, I'm in well over my head. Even YouTube can't pull me out of this one, right? We fall short of 100% perfection and we all understand the maximum. Hey, nobody's perfect. And even... 
Culturally, we say, hey, nobody's perfect. And one of the hardest things we have about God is that God says, Jesus says, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And so where should we go for hope? The only place for hope is to rest assured in God's promises given in his word. And those promises is what shows us Jesus. They show us our Redeemer. And at Rowan this semester, we're studying how all of the scripture shows us Jesus. And so we've gone back to Genesis and are working through the Old Testament because Jesus, even in this story, patiently explains to these travelers, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explains to them the things concerning himself in the scriptures. He takes them through the Bible, beginning with Moses, who wrote the Pentateuch, who begins with Genesis and leads through all the prophets showing the scriptures concerning himself. Like how Jesus is the greater Adam who kept covenant with God and who merits life for himself and for all who are in him. How Jesus is there in the Garden of Eden, the hope when shame was all that was left. After Adam and Eve had forsaken God and trusted in the serpent and in Satan and the curses of sin had come down and they're being kicked out of the garden. Adam turns to his wife and he gives her a name and he names her Eve, the mother of the living. Why? Because God promised that a seed was coming. An heir who would crush the serpent under his head and break the curse of humanity and bring life. How Jesus is there in the covenant with Noah in Genesis 8, giving grace to the children of man, whose every thought is wickedness continually. Yet God graciously gave favor to Noah and his family, carrying them through the ark and giving them the promise, the rainbow, that the next time he exercises judgment on man, it will be on himself and not on man. How Jesus is present in the promises of Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17, that he'll be made the father of many nations. And through grace by faith in Christ, today Abraham is the father of nations all over the globe. And even in Sunday schools, we discussed many of those nations God is bringing right here to Glassboro to study at Rowan and allowing us to tell them this wonderful good news. Jesus is there in the burning bush of Exodus 3 as God hears the cries of his people groaning out in slavery and their slavery by Pharaoh and to sin keeps them from worshiping God and God is bringing a deliverer to set them free. How Jesus is the Passover lamb in Exodus 12 whose pure blood protects his people from wrath and delivers them to liberty. How Jesus is the lawgiver and the law keeper of God's moral law, that not an iota of it, not a jot, a tittle will pass away, but it is fulfilled in Him all righteousness that is required for faith. How Jesus is the tabernacle, explained in Exodus 40 and in the Gospel of John and in Hebrews, the presence of God with us, who tabernacled amongst us and promises to greet us face to face, to wipe away our tear and to say, well done, good and faithful servant when we meet him in glory. How Jesus is the snake that's lifted in the wilderness of Numbers 21 and of John 3 that heals all those who look to him from anguish and gives new life. Jesus is that prophet greater than Moses spoken of in Deuteronomy 18 who speaks God's word to God's people and we can trust him. 
Jesus, the greater king of David's line, promised in 2 Samuel 7, the one who reigns on the throne forever in righteousness, defending his people and conquering all of his enemies. Jesus is the one the psalmist sees, forsaken of God, calling out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that all who look on him now know they will never be forsaken. Jesus is the helper in the fire of Daniel when even worldly pressures call for compromise, but instead, God's people can say, I know the one I serve and my God is with me. And Jesus is the suffering servant of the prophets in Isaiah 53. Did you not know the Messiah would have to suffer before entering into his glory? The one who is stricken and smitten, who is despised and forgotten by men, who is pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, For by his wounds we are healed. I've gone on and on about how Jesus is seen through the Old Testament. Maybe I've gone on a little bit too much or maybe just enough, but we barely scratched the surface of all that God's word has to say to us about Jesus and how we can see him as our redeemer. All that it says just from Moses to the manger. And we barely scratched the surface. Jesus is our hope. He's the one who fulfills the work of God. We need to see Jesus as we need to see him revealed in the scriptures. We need to believe the scriptures are God's word and what they say are true and trustworthy for our life and for our hope. But you know, if you're looking for Jesus or you're looking for even just for that hope that Jesus brings, there's all kinds of people that will tell you where to find it. You know, you can go to the Barnes & Noble bookstore on campus, or you can go to any Barnes and Noble and go through the Christian living. And they always put the Christian living right next to the self-help. And there's a reason for that, because you'll be really depressed if you're really trying to find real hope in the Christian living or self-help section at Barnes and Noble. But there's all these sources saying where to find it, here, there, everywhere else. Or consider all the religions of the world and their perspectives on hope. Every religion says it has a corner market on truth and peace. But Christianity is the only one that tells you that it's not on you to go out there and find it or to seek for it in yourself, but that the source of hope and peace came to find you, to rescue you, and to give you life. God has to reveal Jesus to us. God has to show it to us. God has to come and search us out and give us hope. In verse 30, Jesus says, when he was at table with them, He took the bread and broke it and gave it to them. And they recognized him. And then he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he opened up the scriptures to us? Do the scriptures cause our hearts to burn within us? And not with burn, but with excitement and with joy and with passion for the truth that they bring to us. Here the disciples see Jesus as he dines with them. He's come in with them. He's shared a meal. But he doesn't just share a meal. He hosts the meal. The actions of taking the bread and of blessing it and breaking it were actions the host of a meal would do. And not only that, but they would be reminded of the last meal they'd had with their master. And how he had reminded them that this bread is my body, which is being given for you. This is my blood, which is being poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. These sacraments, these means of grace, this is where the disciples see Jesus, where they realize this is somebody important and I've missed it all along. This is also where we see Jesus. 
This is where God reveals Jesus to us. That's the second point today, is how God reveals Jesus to us. Notice there, in verse 30, that they didn't recognize Jesus until he was revealed to them in the breaking of bread. It's as they gather together with Jesus as the head of the party, just as we're doing this morning, that Jesus is revealed to them. They didn't see Jesus when they had a personal encounter with him on the road. They didn't see Jesus when the women reported the angels saying he was risen. They didn't see Jesus when they went to investigate themselves. They saw Jesus when they gathered together and the scriptures were open to them. And that's where we are promised, church, to see Jesus as well. That's how God reveals Jesus to us and gives us hope and reveals our redemption. Not in a personal experience or the experiences of others. In the very word of God. All personal experiences, experiences of others, our own personal journey for truth and meaning, they all have, ma- have meaning and value, but only as they're brought under submission to God's word and what God has to say do we find ultimate hope and meaning to them. So we can think of the bread as, as like the body of Christ, as Jesus said. His physical body is broken for us as a payment for our sin. But we're also told the body of Christ as the church as we gather together to worship our Redeemer who was broken for our sin. Attending, being a part of a local church, being involved. These are ways that we see Jesus. How do you see Jesus working in your church? It's amazing to hear the opportunities with Child Evangelism Fellowship, with welcome packets going out to people in the neighborhood, with Bible studies, And with care groups, you see Jesus working in your midst. It's a blessing. Even then, as Jesus blesses the meal that he's having with his disciples, he's offering a prayer. And so engaging in the mean of grace of prayer, praying together, we see Jesus. One of the things I'll do with my leadership team every time we meet is I ask them to share stories of God at work. And what that requires them to do is to think... Where is God working? In a secular environment, in a secular world, it it does good fruit for us to think sometimes, where is God working in my workplace, in my classroom, in my family? It doesn't have to be an amazing thing like this person came to faith today. It could be even a little thing like somebody asked me to pray with them. Or, you know, God just really helped me pass that test or get through that project. God works in the little things, and we should not despise the day of small things. Even a daily prayer of thanking God for our meals. Remembering. Our meals don't come from the grocery store. They come from the hand of God who provides them and allows us to have bread for each day. So we give thanks and we commune with Christ by the promise of his word. By opening the scriptures to see the promises revealed in Christ. Promises of hope and of redemption and of purpose and of aspirations. These disciples had hope that Jesus was the Redeemer. The scriptures reveal him that he is. And so, how do we see Jesus? We see him through the scriptures and the promises of God. But how then is it supposed to change us? What does it matter That's the third point, how seeing Jesus changes us. So the disciples see Jesus as they're sitting there at the table, and then he vanishes. What 
is going on? Why would a traveler come and labor so long with them and sit with them until they finally see him and then poof, he's gone? Where did he go? We know through the text that he is going to others and revealing himself. Just as he had revealed himself to the women before these these journeyers. So now he goes on and reveals himself to the other disciples. But they don't know that yet. But what they do then, in the meantime, is look at each other in amazement at what they had just seen. Jesus is alive. He is risen. And now what? Our hearts burned within us while he talked to us on the road and opened to us the scriptures. And so, here's how it changes their life and how seeing Jesus changes our life. First is that their hearts burn within them. There's an excitement for what has just happened. Jesus has risen and appeared to them. Their hopes are fulfilled. Their longings are met. This Jesus brings forgiveness of sin and redemption and hope for life and for eternity. And there's now an excitement about God and his word and his work in them. And then they take immediate action. In this excitement, they don't say, well, let's form a committee to figure out what happened. You know, we journeyed all this way to get here to Emmaus. Maybe we'll just stay the night and then tomorrow we can go back to Jerusalem. No, they take immediate action. And notice, they just traveled all day. And now it's getting sundown. And they're going to travel all night to get back to Jerusalem. And the thing about walking at night is it isn't safe. They're going to take immediate action, even in danger, because the joy of the Lord is worth it and is motivating them. And so immediately, that same hour, they rose and they returned to Jerusalem. If your heart's burning within you as you talk about hope and seeing Jesus, then it's take immediate action. Don't wait. Trust in Him. Follow Him. Go as He leads you. He's got work to do. But notice where they go. They go to connect with other disciples. In verse 33, now I don't know, this summer we went for a walk uh, in Mount Rainier in in Washington State, and we took our son with us. We did a a three-mile hike. It was a lot of fun, but it was a long three miles. And at the end of the time, I was done walking. My wife was done walking. My son was done walking. These disciples walked it and back. And they're still not resting. They go to find the disciples. They go and connect. They went to church. And they found the other eleven who were there. They didn't stay alone or keep quiet. They get to Jerusalem and they immediately go to church. But what they find is they're not the first ones to speak. They go there to church. And as they open the door, what do the disciples say? The Lord has risen and appeared to Simon. And they hear the gospel. Because they've gone with the others. Imagine the excitement that's going on in that group, telling of what has happened. They're ready to tell them, and they open the door. we got a message to say, and what do they say? They send the message right back to them. Amazing what happens when we share a common confession. How the Lord works. The Lord is risen. This is our confession and our hope, and it's meant to be shared together. And then fourthly, they tell of what has happened after they hear the exuberant expressions of the disciples, then they get their turn to tell of what's happened to them. They get to share their testimony. And we get to share ours. Your testimony matters as we share of what the Lord is doing. 
What had started as a sad journey away from a tragic weekend is now a joyful expression of a new beginning. Light has shone in the darkness. Death has been defeated. Hope has dawned on a new day. We had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. And now we know that he is. I began talking about encounters with famous people and, and not knowing it, uh, like the disciples had with Jesus, like we had with Sean Couturier or the Flyers. But I want to conclude this morning of saying we've all had an encounter this morning with the risen Christ as we've been here in worship. Did you know it? Have you seen Jesus today? As we gather together to praise Him and to hear His Word taught, this happens every time we get together in Jesus' name. He meets with us. He leads us in the processional before God's throne. Have you seen Jesus today? Has He met you and shown Himself to be your Redeemer? And if so, the call is to do like these disciples. Do not wait. Experience the joy of Christ. Take action to follow Him. Connect with other disciples and tell of what has happened to you. There's a world out there that needs this message. That is wrapped up in identity politics and self-fulfillment and despair. That needs to know the Redeemer is here. So I hope you see Him. And I hope you know Him. And if you do, rejoice that he's been revealed to you by God for your hope and your assurance. And if you'd like to see him, he promises he's near to all who seek him. And he's willing to come in if you will open to him. But if you haven't yet seen him, let me encourage you to listen to the stories of the scriptures. And to listen to the testimonies of the saints. And to explore the means of grace and expect him to show you how he is the Redeemer. To give you a hope and a purpose. And will you pray for these things with me? Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the Lord Jesus. How he fulfilled everything of your word. How he has gone and suffered in our place to give us hope. How he has risen to give us assurance and life. And so, God, we pray that we would see Jesus. We pray that you would reveal him to us and that you would change our lives. And God, also, would you reveal yourself to our friends, our neighbors, and our loved ones, and many others who are looking for hope, lost in anxiety and despair, that they may see Jesus and have the hope in him as well. We pray in his name. Amen.